Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 11. In this episode, we will be talking to Mr. Jeffrey Kotick, and we will be talking about astrology in East Asia and its evolution and migration from the Greco-Egyptian world through India and Persia, through China, and finally in Japan. Mr. Kotick received his PhD from Leiden University in the Netherlands, where he researched Buddhism and astrology in medieval China and Japan, and he's currently doing postdoctorate work in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Toronto, Canada. He is the author of numerous papers, such as Japanese Buddhist Astrology and Astral Magic, Mikyo and Sukuyodo, Buddhist Astrology and Astral Magic in the Tang Dynasty, and Iranian Elements in Late Tang Buddhist Astrology, among others, and there's many more. Um, all of his papers can be found on archive.org. And he has a blog called Flower Ornament Depository. We feel Mr. Kotick's voice and work is a very valuable contribution to the areas of Buddhist studies, astrology, and astrological magical studies. This is a subject which hasn't fully been explored yet in the West, partially due to cultural and linguistic barriers, but there may be no better person to walk us through it than Mr. Kotick. This won't be totally comprehensive as that would take a very long time, but we hope to provide a decent primer on the subject and give everyone a good general working knowledge on the larger astrological landscape in the East. So we hope you enjoy it. Okay, welcome to the show. We are here with Janice and with our special guest, Jeffrey Kotick. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Very glad to have you here. How's it going, Janice? It's going uh, kind of slowly right now, but that's good, I guess, for the spirit of slowness. <laughs> okay. Um, nice. So we've got you on today to talk about... Um, astrology and specifically astrology as it moves kind of from the the west to the east and your your wheelhouse is definitely the uh, chinese um you've been doing a lot of work on the chinese buddhists and chinese astrology and japanese uh astrology as well that's correct so however you want to start it off i mean we could start off with with questions or you can well how about this let's start off with an introduction who is who okay. is jeffrey Kotick? Okay, well, my name is Jeffrey, and I'm originally from Western Canada in a city called Winnipeg, which is north of North Dakota. Um, so it's a snowy, cold place, but I ended up doing my master's degree in Japan at Komazawa University uh, in two, starting in 2009. And so it was there that I studied uh, primarily East Asian Buddhism, and there uh, I later Graduated in 2011, and I spent some time in India initially, um, five months in Ladakh, that's in northern India, western Tibet, up in the Himalayas, basically doing a meditation retreat and reading Chinese Buddhist texts for about four or five months, meditating for about five to eight hours a day, which was a very fruitful experience. And then later, I was a Buddhist monk for about just under two years in India and Nepal. I spent a bit of time also in Singapore. And I also spent some time in Taiwan, uh, translating some Buddhist texts for a Buddhist organization there. And then in 2014, I went to um, Leiden University, which is in the Netherlands, just uh, south of Amsterdam, for my PhD. Spent a year 
of my PhD in Japan, doing my preliminary research for my dissertation on Buddhist astrology and astral magic in the Tang Dynasty. The Tang Dynasty is the um, Chinese dynasty that lasted from the early 7th century to the late 9th century. And it was during this time that Chinese Buddhism really flourished. And this is also the time when esoteric Buddhism, also called Tantric Buddhism or Vajrayana, was transmitted into China and then later it was transmitted to Japan. And so I ended up studying uh, astrology in China and Japan, and then also examining what this meant for the art record, as well as the literary record. I looked at poetry, I looked at uh, archaeological artifacts as well that were uh, preserved down to the present day. And so, yeah, it's been a very fruitful experience studying the reception and development of astrology in China. And then I finished the PhD in 2017, in September, and then I went to Germany for a six-month postdoc. So after you do your PhD, you get these sort of funded trips or um, fellowships to do research for several months. So I did my first postdoc in Germany, and I looked at basically what the Chinese did with horoscopy between the 9th century to the 16th century. And then the paper that resulted from that was published recently in Sinoplatonic Papers. And so you can give a link to the uh, to the listeners and they can download this paper uh, for free. So it's a 95 page paper on Chinese horoscopy. It's almost a book, but it's a free PDF. So if you wanna have a look, you can look at that. And now I'm at McMaster University, which is just outside of Toronto uh, in a city called Hamilton. And I'm researching Chinese Buddhist history right now. So I've covered a lot of ground in the last several years. And this is my first time living in Canada after living abroad for 10 years. So. It's interesting coming back to North America. And so that's my, my background, more or less. And you're still pretty young. So, I mean, that, that's quite a bit. That's quite a bit. Right. I'm, 30, I'm 33 years old as of this year. Right. So that's quite a, quite a lot of accomplishments. So congratulations again. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's see. And you also seem pretty proficient in Western astrology. You're pretty knowledgeable. Where did that, where did that come from? Just, just self-study and... Yeah, actually, uh, the way I approached this was I had discovered that horoscopy was being practiced in East Asia. And the problem is, is that most academic studies on this subject were coming from uh, people who don't really have proficiency in horoscopy. But of course, I knew that modern uh, Western astrology is not necessarily what was practiced in the medieval period, let alone the ancient period. So I went back to the original sources. So there were some uh, academic uh, books Initially, that I looked at Tamsin Barton's work on ancient astrology. That was the first book I read. And then I looked online and I found Chris Brennan's Hellenistic Astrology course. So I registered for that right away. And I went through all of the uh, course. And I also got his book that was later published. And that's how I really got into Hellenistic horoscopy. And then I moved on to reading uh, Benjamin Dyke's translations of the various uh, Arab authors. Uh, from the medieval period. And then after I had this grasp of uh, classical horoscopy, I was able to read the literature in Chinese, um, also the Japanese texts, because I knew what they were talking about. Because you have, uh, you know, all the major features of Hellenistic horoscopy are also found in East Asia. So you have the triplicity rulers, the domiciles, you have, uh, you know, of course, the planetary dignities and so forth. That's all there. But in order to really understand what the Chinese is saying, you have to understand horoscopy. And then also with my study of um, the astral magic that we find in East Asia, what I discovered was that it was coming not from Indian sources necessarily, but Iranian sources. And the Iranian sources most likely 
or most certainly got their sources from the Near East. And so I did some comparative studies of what you see in the Picatrix um, using Warnock and Greer's translation, but also referring to David Pingree's Latin edition with what we see in the Chinese. And what I discovered is that there's so many striking parallels that the conclusion is that the Picatrix and the East Asian sources were ultimately deriving from similar uh, traditions that go back to the Near East. And so that's how I managed to get a grasp on Western horoscopy and astro magic. That's fascinating. That's awesome. And for the listeners, um, Jeffrey is fluent in Japanese and Chinese. That's correct. Yeah. If it wasn't clear that you're a pretty smart guy, I just wanted to point that out too. <laughs> well, I have my limitations. I'm very poor at mathematics. <laughs> um, so do you feel like um, the astrology and the esoteric Buddhism traveled along pretty parallel paths moving from west to east i mean that's that's what i'm seeing the more i look into it well, well let, let me give you an outline of uh, basically what happened in china yeah. so uh the first thing we have to point out though is that uh, when we're talking about indian astrology there are the 28 uh, lunar mansions nakshetras or the lunar stations and that's an indigenous development to india so the, india had its own form of native lunar astrology before the introduction of horoscopy through, from Hellenistic or Iranian sources, which became texts such as the Yavana Jataka, which um, is quite popular even to this day in India. But there's also a lot of Westerners who consult this, uh, this manual. So it, the next center of the lunar mansion astrology came to China through Buddhist literature initially. And so that happened um, in the early 4th century when a monk named Dharma Raksha translated a text called the Shardula Karna Avadana. And this just gives some rudimentary comments about uh, nakshetras, their dimensions, their qualities, the gods associated with them, and also just some predictions about um, what this what is signified when the moon is in each of the lunar stations. And there was also later literature in the fourth and fifth century uh, translated into Chinese, and so this also touched upon uh, the lunar mansions. But at the time in 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 China, there wasn't a need on the part of Chinese Buddhists to practice astrology. For example, um, they didn't have to do electional astrology in order to time their rituals because they just basically followed the lunar cycle. Um, in theory, according to what the Buddhist scriptures um, suggest or what they prescribe. So uh, there is two main features of the original Buddhist astrology, which is effectively hemorology or electional astrology. There's the titis and the pakshas. So a titi is a lunar day. And there's 15 of them in one paksha. So a paksha is either one waning or one waxing period. So altogether, they make up approximately 30 days. And so those features are part of the original Indian calendrical system. And then that was also attested in, in Buddhist literature. But what you, don't, what you don't have in this literature are the uh, seven-day, uh, seven, you don't have the seven-day week, but you also don't have um, the zodiac signs and other things such as like the, the planets and so forth. That came later in Indian astrology, especially through works like the Yavana Jataka, which um, has been, you know, dated by Pingri um, to, I think, what is it, the uh, fourth century, uh, third, or, third, or, third or fourth century, but it's probably a little bit later. It's probably fourth or fifth century, according to what some Indologists have, uh, have, have researched. So, but later, what you end up having in the um, eighth century is the translation and introduction of esoteric Buddhism. And so that's more, you know, commonly known in the West as Tantric Buddhism or Vajrayana. 
So um, Tibetan Buddhism is, is, is normally qualified as Vajrayana Buddhism. And so, uh, you know, the same tradition was also transmitted into China in the 8th century, especially in the 710s and 720s with the translation of um, various texts like the Mahavairochana Sutra. And this text in specifically says that you have to create the mandala, that means the sacred ritual space, when it's astrologically auspicious. But then if you're a Chinese monk at the time, you don't necessarily know what an auspicious time is. It says in the commentary to this that you have to take into consideration the seven-day week, the lunar stations, the zodiac signs, the planets. And then it says, but you should refer to the Indian calendar. But at that point in China, they didn't have an authoritative manual on Indian astrology that was accessible. So it, it fell to a later generation, a monk named the Moghavadra, who was a very prominent translator, and um, created um, a manual of authoritative Buddhist astrology in Chinese. And, and in Chinese, it's the Xiao Yao Jing, which translates as the sutra or scripture of uh, lunar mansions and planets. And so that was uh, first crafted in 759, and then it was revised in 764. And this manual of Buddhist astrology is really important because it's, it's very practical. So um, the lunar mansions in India went through various developments. Nakshatras were originally not of uniform size. So they were of different dimensions, but then trying to translate that into Chinese when the Chinese had their own native system of observational astronomy was simply impractical. But this new manual, what it does is, is it adopts a revised Indian system of the lunar stations into a Chinese system. So basically what you have is the system of Navamsas. So the Navamsas is basically an Indian system where each of the lunar stations is divided into equal proportions, so they're all universally the same size. They're of the same dimensions. And then what they did with the Chinese system was they simply used um, each lunar day was assigned to one of the um, 27 lunar stations or lunar mansions. I should say that what you end up having is in, in Indian systems, you either have a system of 27 or 28 nakshetras. Um, and then in this system, they used the 27 system. And it became very practical because basically all you need, needed, needed to know was today is lunar day three or lunar day five on the Chinese calendar. And it corresponds to this Indian lunar station. And so it's kind of rudimentary and it's only approximate, but it worked. So that was and, and that was one of the most important developments at this time. And then they also introduced the seven day week, which at the time was known to the Chinese, but they weren't practicing it yet because they didn't actually have a reason to do it. And this text says that if you don't know the day of the week, go talk to a Persian or an Indian or um, some other foreigner because they all observe the seven-day week. So what it's referring to is the Nestorian Christians, the Zoroastrians, and the Hindus living in China in the 8th century. And these communities observed the seven-day week. So the Chinese didn't have this custom yet, but it was rapidly integrated into Chinese religious culture because each day has its, uh, you know, hemorological features. Um, you're supposed to do things and not do things on certain days of the seven day week. And so this manual really became an authoritative manual, but it, what it did was it also spurred Chinese interest in foreign astrology. And so what happened after this point, starting around the year 800, was the translation of true horoscopy. Now true horoscopy uh, means like having um, a system where you can calculate the positions of the planets at any time, especially within the last century, to create um, a natal chart and also interpret it um, with some sort of authority or canonical literature. And one of the main texts that was translated was a version of Dorotheus of Sidon. 
It's not the same translation that um, we have preserved in Arabic. This is, um, I guess, a sort of revised version with uh, additional elements added. So, for example, uh, we don't have the entire text of Dorotheus in Chinese, but what we do have is fragments. And then in later 16th century sources, we have um, very long quotations of Dorotheus. And so my dissertation has identified a lot of the common uh, parallels between the translation from in Arabic with what we see in the Chinese. And the most prominent uh, part of that is the uh, lots. And so they line up almost exactly in most cases with what uh, Dorotheus prescribes for the lots, like the lot of fortune, the lot of mother, the lot of love, et cetera, et cetera. And so, at, so around the year 800, horoscopy becomes very popular. And some uh, poets in China in the ninth century are incorporating allusions to uh, horoscopy and astrology in their literature. You also have the practice of astral magic, both in Buddhism and Taoism. And this is also where the so-called uh, Teja Prabha Buddha comes to really gain popularity in China. Now, Teja Prabha Buddha is very prominent in Japan and China from the 9th century until at least the 15th or 16th century. And he's always depicted as sort of like a cosmic uh, Buddha. So he's seated in you know, the meditation posture and he's surrounded by these astral deities. And the reason that he became so popular, I argue, is that you had all these Buddhists who were basically frightened by horoscopy and astrology, because horoscopy inevitably will tell you that there's all sorts of misfortune on the horizon. But if you practice this sort of ritual magic, then you can sort of negate those influences. You can um, placate the planets, and then you can have you know a better fortune. And so this really caught on in Japan as well. And so Kukai, the um, founder of Shingon Buddhism in Japan, he returned in 806 to Japan with a copy of Amogavadra's astrological manual. And so this was the introduction of the seven-day week into Japan. And then in the following century, you have the introduction of horoscopy from China into Japan. And then you have the development of a lineage of Buddhist astrologer monks called Sukuyodo. So Sukuyodo is literally uh, lunar stations planets, and Wei, so Do as in like Tao, or, you know, in the Tao Te Ching, Tao Te Ching or Tao Te Ching, that Tao, so Wei, so it's, it, it became a very popular um, and prominent lineage in Japan. So first they were casting horoscopes, and actually in the tale of Genji by Murasaki Shikibu, she actually refers to these uh, uh, astrologer monks um, twice in her novel, in the tale of Genji. And then you also have contemporary journals of aristocrats who mention them. Some of them were actually waka poets, so they did Japanese poetry as well. And so they lasted until about the 14th century. And they also practiced astral magic for the shogun, as well as the emperors, as well as various aristocrats. I don't know if they were that, that much of a popular lineage amongst common people, but they were very prominent at the aristocratic level. And then... Uh, on the Chinese side of things, you have uh, sort of like the long-term development of sort of domesticated or naturalized horoscopy. So what you see in the 16th century Chinese horoscopic literature is the older material from the previous centuries that is very influenced by um, Dorothean materials with native Chinese ideas. 
So you have native Chinese ideas of yin yang, so yin and yang, as well as the five elements and so on, being incorporated into this uh, sort of domesticator or naturalized Chinese horoscopy. And so it, it so horoscopy was just very very prominent in East Asia. And what my research has demonstrated is that this had a very profound impact on the art record as well as on the religious uh, you know record of, of East Asian religions. Well, that was a lot. I think uh, I think you covered everything. Thanks for coming on the show, Jeff. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we covered a, we had we covered a few centuries there in, in about ten minutes. So yeah, Janice, what do you got? I was going to say I know in the development of Zen Buddhism, Taoism played a pretty important role, especially in the you know the sort of transmission from China to Japan, and I'm wondering. Um, I know astral magic is a big part of Taoist magic. Mm-hmm. How does that all? How does that all work to get? Like, how does that all interplay in the historical context? So the question, the question is, is, is where does Taoist astral magic come from? Well, yeah, and how how much of an influence Taoism have on the development of the Japanese astral magic as well? Okay, well, that's 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 a very interesting question. Um, Yes, so um, one of the main components of Taoist astral magic, especially from, for example, the eighth and ninth century, is worship of the Big Dipper, the seven stars of the Big Dipper, and that was incorporated into also uh, Buddhist astral magic um, of the same period, and then also the Taoist literature as well has this. And so the basic idea is that each star of the Big Dipper um, governs over um, longevity or it governs over the longevity of the person um, who is born under that specific star. And so then you have like the Chinese cycle of time. And uh, so each day and each year is under one of those uh, units of time. And so you determine which unit of time you were born under and you um, find out which of those units would correspond to which of the seven stars of the Big Dipper. And what you have in uh, the Buddhist literature is this uh, practice of Homa. So Homa is originally a Sanskrit, it's an Indian word, and it refers to a fire puja. So you you burn offerings to uh, a deity. And in this case, it's sort of an amalgamation of Indian and Chinese elements. So what you would do is you would uh, do a comprehensive ritual to the seven stars of the Big Dipper. And generally this was done for longevity and good fortune and, and, and health and that sort of thing. Um, as to whether Zen Buddhists practice this, I think they were aware of it and it was a very widespread practice because, because in medieval Japan, this sort of magic became widespread amongst all the Buddhist schools. Uh, but especially more so Tendai and Shingon, those are the, they practiced esoteric Buddhism. And even to this day, you also have, um, it's called uh, Hoshiku in Japanese. So it literally means offering to the stars. And um, in this case, you determine, you determine the specific astral deity that you want to direct your offerings to. And then you do a sort of like um, ritual with offerings and incense and candles and so on. And then in, um, Japan, they also had something called star mandalas. So, you know, a mandala is this painting with all of the different uh, deities in it. You can have dozens, you can even have more than 100 deities in a single mandala. And uh, there's the star mandalas. And so usually at the center, you have a figure like Tejaprabha Buddha or uh, Milken, Siddhirsti. And then you have the planets, the seven stars of the Big Dipper, 
you have the lunar stations and other figures um, surrounding them. And so even to this day, there is a day of the year that you practice uh, this sort of uh, star offering. And so there's a prescribed format, a ritual procedure, you carry it out, and it's supposed to bring about uh, good fortune into your life. Uh, nowadays, I think it's more done for the sake of um, bringing good fortune because uh, the horoscopy died out in Japan around the 14th century because the lineage of Sukiyodo disappears around that time. But the rituals that they had innovated and developed were actually still practiced in later centuries, very interestingly. But at that point, it's divorced from horoscopy and it's more done just as a, as a practice uh, toward astral deities. So where is, I want to take a step back right. to China in a second, but where does uh, modern uh, supposed Tsukiyodo in Japan, what is that based on? Oh, that's a very interesting question. So what happened was in the Meiji period in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was an interest in Mogavadra's Manual of Astrology. That's what I just talked about that was produced in the 750s and 760s. And so what um, some Japanese scholars and um, sort of enthusiasts did was they um, brought together the old manuscripts and they made typeset versions. So they reprinted this text and then they also added their commentaries. And it really took off and it was sort of treated as Kukai's astrology. I mean, Kukai was actually quite familiar with this text, we know. There is an actual oral testimony by his uh, um, disciple, Jichie, in a text called the Hino Kuketsu, so like the oral testimony at Hino. And Kukai had to answer some questions about how to use this text, um, especially in relation to uh, the lunar calendar. And so he was familiar with it. But in actual practice, the lineage of Sukuyodo postdates Kukai. So Kukai, um, he came back to China in 806, and then he died a few decades later. But then Sukuyodo as a lineage only appears in the late 10th century. So Kukai actually was not the founder of Sukuyodo at all. And this new practice of Sukuyo in Japan, which often claims to go back to Kukai, is basically just, um, how do you say, it's basically a commercial development. It really took off after World War II. If you look at the Japanese books that um, are sold on Amazon and other um, Japanese websites um, that deal with Sukuyo astrology, it's, it's, it's using Amogavadra's Manual of Astrology, but it's not horoscopy because Amogavadra's Manual deals with, again, the seven-day week, the lunar stations. It does mention the zodiac signs, but it doesn't tell you how to calculate the positions of the planets or how to produce a horoscope. Um, so it, it's basically a 20th century uh, phenomenon. Okay. And, and I think in, in one of your papers, you had mentioned uh, maybe someone named Hozo right. as maybe the first um, documented practitioner of Sukiyodo. Right. Yeah. Hozo, Hozo, Hozo was um, basically the, the, the first guy in, or one of the first members of the Sukiyodo lineage um, in Japan, starting in the late 10th century. Okay. And just for the listeners, um, just to, to back step a second uh, on Sukiyodo, um, I'm taking this from your paper, um, uh, the definition. Uh, Sukiyodo, it's a blend of Buddhist, Taoist, Iranian, and Hellenistic concepts representing a thoroughly developed system of astrology inherited from late Tang China. Yep. And that's that's by way of Persia. Right. So that's something I should also emphasize is that horoscope came into East Asia through Iranians. It wasn't actually um, Indians. It was Iranians. And when I say Hellenistic, um, ultimately, you know, some of these elements such as triplicity rules, rulers, domiciles and so on, that's Hellenistic in origin. But the kind of horoscopy that was practiced uh, in 
Tang China, so again, the 8th or 9th century, was coming from Persians or ethnically Iranian uh, people. So they might not have been Persian Persian, they might have been um, some other Iranian people like Sogdians, for example, who were these caravan traders who traversed all of Central Asia from um, Syria to uh, China. So it might have also been the Sogdians. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to think that the the Japanese, which is pretty far from, from Persia and from Greece, the Japanese were, were using stuff based on Hel- Hellenistic sources, uh, really. If you oh, go definitely. Like if, if you had actually just, um, for example, picked up a Arab astrologer in the 10th century and you dropped him into Japan and you translated the, the horoscope before him, he would have recognized almost all of the materials. Um, it would, like triplicity rulers, domiciles, even Rahu and Ketu, the ascending, ascending nodes of the moon, are um, mm-hmm. in East Asian horoscopy. Yeah, it's, it's all there. And it's interesting, too, because the Japanese even had um, a lot of images that were, were very reminiscent of the Persian, Iranian, um, and also the Indian kind of visual representations of Mercury, Venus, Jupiter. Oh, right. Yeah, the iconography, which you can see in my paper, um, or several of my papers, um, I, I really would uh, um, encourage listeners to uh, look at this paper. Uh, that iconography, some of it is Indian, but a lot of the planetary deities are depicted in a way that is almost identical to what you see in the Islamic record. So, for example, Venus is always playing a pipa, and a pipa is basically a, a Chinese guitar of Persian origin. And then you also have uh, Saturn, who's always depicted as an old Brahmin. I mean, they, they literally say Brahmin in Chinese, but what they mean is basically a, um, a, someone who looks Indian, but that could also extend to somebody who looks like Central Asian. And he's always depicted as an old man with a crooked back holding a cane. And in uh, Arab, but also in uh, Hellenistic sources, Kronos is always depicted as an old man with a beard um, and a hunched over back. And he's usually holding a sickle in the Greco-Egyptian sources, but that sickle either became an axe, a club, or a staff in later uh, Near Eastern and Iranian sources. So a lot of that iconography is just coming straight from um, Persian sources. But you also have the Indian icons as well. But really what came to dominate the uh, art, um, art record in East Asia were the uh, icons of Iranian origin. Yeah, it's really interesting because the, the Japanese would not have really known what those a lot of what, what a lot of that symbolism meant like you had talked about in your your paper that mercury for instance there was an image of a snake and a monkey there's no way that the japanese would have known that the monkey could have represented a, a baboon which yeah. would correlate with with the thoth image in, right. in the greco-egyptian or perhaps the snake was the caduceus um so it's almost like they were like the equivalent of the barbarous names that, that people use in like the PGM and other texts, they don't know where these names came from, but we, we trust that someone smart, you know, wrote them down for a reason. The images are almost like barbarous images. Right. They, they don't know what they mean, but they trust them. And it does make sense looking at it from this, you know, mile high distance looking down at history. So it's really interesting in that way. Right. Well, another aspect of the Persian possible Persian influence is uh, I know that I know that one perspective is that the Homa ritual comes from India, but it's also possible that it came from um, Zoroastrians who actually call it the Homa ritual and use it as a fire sacrifice. 
I've seen two writers on Shingon actually uh, speculate that this is the origin, and it seems like within Shingon there's dialogue about a Zoroastrian influence on it, which is which is pretty interesting to me to to, to sort of you know think about. Like we talked about Jeffrey before, like the parallels between uh, Mahavira Chana Buddha and Ahura Mazda and mm-hmm. things like that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, this is when we're getting into sort of the deep history of Asia. There was a lot of uh, common features between ancient Vedic religion and a Western religion. I mean, that's largely because these, I mean, what we call Zoroastrianism and uh, the, the Vedas, they ultimately stem from a mother tradition. It's called the Indo-European uh, culture or the Proto-Indo-European culture. So they do have a common heritage. Like Indo-European is also a language family. And so English and Hindi and um, Farsi belong to this Indo-European uh, heritage. And so the religious heritage as well, um, you know, there's a common religious heritage there as well. But uh, also in China, they would refer to the Zoroastrians as fire worshippers. They always associated them with fire offerings as well. So it's not inconceivable that Buddhists might have learned something of fire offerings from Zoroastrians or, you know, uh, sort of the worshippers of Ahura Mazda that you find in Central Asia and then also in China for a time. Yeah, I think the the Brahmins, didn't they, they, part, they participated in the, the Homa ritual and the Brahmins were were uh, very active in India and that's you know Buddhism obviously mm-hmm. developed in that area with with the that brahmanist brahmanistic influence right the one thing uh, about medieval chinese religion is that uh they didn't necessarily strongly differentiate between uh persians and indians and sogdians and other peoples from central asia they have this word called western regions and so uh, some of the horoscopic literature is said to have been introduced by a Brahmin from the Western regions, or it just says that these texts or these elements were introduced from the Western regions. So there's a sort of nebulous idea of the West in China. And some, I think also a lot of authors and a lot of um, sort of con- people during the medieval period, I mean, including Buddhist and Taoist uh, clerics, they, they didn't really know the difference between, for example, um, like Iranian speakers and Sanskrit speakers, it all kind of blurs together in the historical record. There were specialist scholars and like, for example, eminent monks like Xuanzang who translated Sanskrit who would have known for sure. But in the more sort of common religious culture, there was much less of this sort of scholarly analysis of foreign cultures. It all just blends together. Cool. Um, so what do you think about, we, we kind of touched on it, um, the Tejra, Tejra Prada, Buddha. Yeah, Tedra Prabha. Yeah. Tedra Prabha. And the connection to Dainichi Nyorai of the Shingon, uh, the, their cosmic god. Is, what do you think about that? We had mentioned that earlier. And is that is that something that Kukai. No, no, of, because Kukai, it doesn't appear, was aware of Tedra Prabha Buddha. So uh, Tedra Prabha, I mean, this is a. Uh, it, the first identifiable. Um, reference to Tejaprabha that I have dated is 796. And there was an Indian monk named Shilabhadra, Shilabhadra, and he translated a ritual manual for worshipping Tejaprabha, as well as uh, the um, astral deities, so the lunar stations and the planets and so on. Um, it does not appear that Kukai was aware of this. He was in China a few years after this was produced, but it doesn't appear that he was aware of this. But he was actually... 
um, the monk Ennin who really brought Teja Prabha back to uh, Japan. And so he came back, um, to, that was around the year 846, 847, he came back to Japan. And he was another one of these Japanese monks who went and studied in China and brought back a lot of materials to Japan. And so the Teja Prabha ritual in Japan, it seems, was predominantly um, restricted to the Tendai school, not Shingon. So Kukai um, created the Shingon school. Saicho created the um, you know, rival Tendai school. And Ennin belonged to the Tendai school. And then in later centuries, you have ritual manuals that say that the Teja Prabha ritual belongs to Tendai. And this is not to be disclosed to anybody outside the lineage. Um, but as to the question okay. of like the relationship to Teja Prabha and Mahavairochana, I don't think anybody ever associates the two strongly together. But in practice, they're both associated with luminous light. So Teja Prabha, the Chinese characters for that, literally mean um, so luminous, luminosity. And so uh, Teja Prabha was originally associated with one of the Buddha's Ushnishas. And an Ushnisha in Sanskrit is the word that refers to that tuft of hair that's on the top of a Buddha's head. So if you look at any Buddha image, you always have like this, this sort of cap of hair that's right on the top of his skull. And that's called an Ushnisha. And that later came to have symbolic meanings because it's at the crown or the peak of the Buddha. And so Teja Prabha, I know this is confusing, was associated with one of the with, with the Nushnisha of the Buddha, and but it just represented this sort of infinite luminosity that's associated with wisdom and um, the light of, of the Buddha. And then this was to be depicted in a human form. So you have to depict it as a Tathagata or as a Buddha image. And then this became detached from the original ritual apparatus associated with Mahavairochana, and Teja Prabhu was treated as a separate deity in East Asia. And I, in my, in my argument is that um, he became very popular in East Asia because people were practicing astrology and horoscopy. So uh, essentially, Teja Prabhu, in the association with the top knot of the Buddha, sort of uh, is a personification almost of like the... Um, enlightenment you know because it's the crown the crown chakra almost where the enlightenment occurs so he would kind of symbolize the celestial light uh, of enlightenment passing through the crown and but he personifies it which is why i think in some tantric buddhism you actually see instead right. of the top knot like a mini buddha in that area right. it's really interesting right right there's there's a lot of very very rich Rich symbolism there. There's a lot of rich symbolism there. And what's the what's the translation of Dainichi Nyorai? Isn't it like bright sun? So Dainichi in Japanese is the Chinese characters for literally great sun. Okay. And that's a translation of um, Maha, great, Vairochana. So there's various interpretations of Vairochana, but the way that they translated it was as sun. Luminosity, great luminosity. And then Nyorai is, is uh, a translation of Tathagata, which is a Sanskrit word which refers to uh, Buddhas. Okay. Yeah. Um, so take it, let's take a few steps back to China because um, we kind of sprinted through indigenous Chinese astrology. So you, you had mentioned that uh, the Indian indigenous astrology was based on the lunar calendar and that cycle. And you also talked about the uh, Taoists kind of 
focusing on the Big Dipper mm-hmm. and the stars and the constellation. Um, was that an indigenous Chinese development? Right. If, if we go back to ancient Chinese astrology, um, we have to understand first and foremost that this is completely disconnected from Mesopotamia and India. It developed independent of uh, the origins of Western astrology. And so the Chinese ha- were aware of the cycles of the planets, at least by the 5th century BCE. And they were able to document their movements because they had um, you know, court astronomers in the various kingdoms before Chinese unification that monitored the movements of the planets. And Chinese observational astronomy was already quite advanced by that time, so 5th century BCE. And then in the unification of China um, after the 3rd century BCE, there was the Han Dynasty, which lasted um, three to 400 years. And so they um, occupied the same period of time as the Roman Empire. So, you know, they were really prospering around, you know, the, the time of Jesus Christ. But they also, um, I suppose, finalized and really developed and consolidated Chinese observational astronomy, which allowed for the development of, um, I suppose, canonical Chinese celestial omenology. So celestial omenology is a bit different from um, what we normally think of as astrology because the idea is is that you are trying to identify omens in the sky that are relevant strictly to the kingdom or the empire and at most the emperor and his person. So that sort of astrology is not relevant to common people because what they they call in Chinese field allocation astrology is literally translated as field allocation astrology. What it does is it divides the ecliptic into various parts, and those parts um, end up corresponding to different um, zones of the Chinese landscape, so different kingdoms of the old ancient Chinese landscape. And so if you you see a comet appear in one of those zones, then it signifies something that's relevant to that specific region of China. So again, it's only relevant to the kingdom or to the emperor as a person, not not to anybody you know, in the, amongst commoners. Um, the other thing is, is that in ancient China, observational astronomy was restricted by law. So you couldn't be a private citizen and study astronomy, and you couldn't also study celestial omenology on your own. And so there were actually laws that forbid people from possessing those texts and teaching it outside of the, you know, authorized schools at the Chinese court. And so that's why, uh, although there might have been sort of popular ideas of astrology, like, for example, you know, the rising of certain stars at different times of the years, the significations of, you know, comets and so forth, the, the study of this really developed form of celestial omenology was only available to specialists in the court. Um, but that being said, there was still uh, what we would call, I guess, astro-religion, and, and in ancient China, they didn't conceive of the planets as deities yet. So, again, this, this Han Dynasty, which it was contemporary with the Roman Empire, they, they knew what the planets were and they tracked them regularly, but they didn't conceive of them as deities, as was the case in the Hellenistic and Roman world, as well as Mesopotamia. Um, what they did was they associated them with the Chinese elements. So Mars is literally the fire star, Jupiter is the wood star, Venus is the metal star, and so on. Um, But what they did have was astral deities that were connected with uh, asterisms or constellations. And so those 
deities were worshipped, as well as the pole star. So the pole star is also a very prominent deity in um, medieval and ancient Chinese religions. And so they have rituals at the court directed toward these deities as well. And I would assume common people as well also um, practice this sort of, you know, astral religion. Okay, speaking of the pole star, you had mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier, uh, Myoken. In, so jumping back to Japan, um, I think Myoken was, um, was he a personification of the pole st- of, of Polaris, right? Right. So... Um, uh, Polaris was also part of the, the indigenous Chinese pantheon, but yeah, so uh, Stadursti is the personification of Polaris, and that's also in the uh, in, in the Buddhist literature. There's these texts that were probably produced in China. They're effectively ritual manuals. They're Dharani texts. So there's a Dharani is like a mantra. It's it's a incantation that is normally transliterated from Sanskrit. But in China, what happens was they they took these Sanskrit um, mantras and put them into Chinese characters and you lost the original uh, pronunciation of the Sanskrit. So it, it becomes something that's completely divorced from the original Sanskrit language and you're just pronouncing um, sort of this, this you know, incantation in a whole other language. Uh, so there were these Durani's directed toward, you know, Milken or uh, Sidursti. And uh, this was a very popular cult starting, especially in the ninth century. And then it really took off in Japan. Um, yeah, Milken was much more popular in Japan than uh, he ever was in China. So in China, Tejaprabha was, was very, very popular. And also Tejaprabha is also attested in later sources as well, even in um, some of the neighboring kingdoms of, of, of China. So, for example, Tejaprabha was very prominent in Korea, in medieval Korea as well. Interesting. So, uh, Myokin was also the pre-Mikyo astrology, right? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say astrology, but um, astral religion, for lack of a better term. Right. So, um, the Japanese, historically, even before the introduction of um, esoteric astrology, esoteric Buddhist astrology in the ninth century, did have a, a very strong interest in the skies, which came over also from the introduction of Chinese literature. So in many ways, they were emulating what the Chinese were doing. So at court, they had, um, you know, uh, sort of an appreciation for uh, astral phenomena in the same way that the Chinese did. Okay, cool. So let's let's talk Japan now. So we're back in Japan. Um, so all of this seems to be culminating in Japan or... or there's an evolution and a progression to the East that's happening, but this is all still very ancient. Like this is still before the Picatrix was, was even written. So, I mean, this is still, I think Picatrix was maybe late 10th century. 10th, yeah. So, I mean, this is still pretty, pretty old stuff. Um, as far as the, the astrology timeline, um, we've talked about Sukiyodo. We've touched, talked about Mikyo. Can you talk about, I don't think we've touched on Onmyodo. Right, on Myodo is is again um, an indigenous Japanese tradition. Um, although, unlike Sukuyodo, on Myodo was primarily interested in not Buddhist texts but native Chinese texts on metaphysics, native Chinese omenology, and magic. So, the on Myodo, which literally translates as "way of union," yeah, um, to a large extent was uh, not u- utilizing Buddhist but rather using Taoist literature and also native Chinese texts on metaphysics and so forth. Um, and so they were also a competing tradition. 
So they were also very well-known magicians in medieval Japan. Um, I think they were also greatly feared by even the shogun because they were um, quite well-known for their powers of um, incantation and summoning and so forth. Um, but they were arguably far more successful in medieval Japan than Sukuyodo. So Sukuyodo was something of a, of a minority in the sort of marketplace of, 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 of magic that one could purchase or to interact with. Whereas the Onmyodo had much more prominence. Oh. oh, I can't hear you, Dominic. Oh, okay, sorry. There we go. I think you had you had mentioned in one of your papers that the Onmyoji um, had positions in the court, which which is why partly the Sukiyodo Sukiyo Sho is that right? Sukiyo Sho. Sukiyo Shi. Sukiyo Shi. were the astrologers themselves. Right, right. So the Sukiyo Shi weren't. Tsukiyo-do wasn't as popular because the Onmyoji kind of had the court or the court locked down like they were the official kind of astrologers. Right, so it, it was a competition in the marketplace yeah. of ideas and magic and so ultimately the Onmyodo won that competition but at the same time Tsukiyo-do had many patrons and a lot of these um, Buddhist astrologer monks and I'm not sure if any of them were nuns. I haven't ever seen a reference to a Buddhist astrologer nun, but that wouldn't surprise me if there were at least a few. Um, but these Buddhist astrologer monks themselves were high-ranking aristocrats in, in many cases, and they were also eminent clerics. So they were Buddhist monks coming from big temples. They had land and titles, and they also usually had you know large, very wealthy families backing them up. So they were by no means um, um, without any power. It's just that in the larger political sphere, the Onmyodo won that competition, especially in the 11th century. What's the state of Onmyodo today? Oh, that's a good question. Again, in, in 20th century Japan, much as you have in the West, you have a lot of revivalism of medieval and ancient traditions. And a lot of it is, from a scholarly point of view, quite questionable. But that being said, you also have the legitimate lineages of Shinto and Buddhism and so forth that have been handed down from um, the medieval period to the present day. And so in Kyoto, for example, um, you do have um, some of the, the shrines that were traditionally used by the Onmyoji still active, and also they also celebrate some of these famous Onmyoji. Is it similar to the Sukiyodo, the modern Sukiyodo, as far as... as uh... Well, I, well I, I suspect, like, I mean, there's, there's, there's books that we would call New age in Japan. And what they do is they basically attempt to reproduce and reconstruct medieval traditions in a way that's suitable to modern readers and practitioners. Whether that has any sort of historicity behind it is another question. <laughs> okay. Okay. Janice, you want to jump in? Do you have anything? Well, I'm interested in hearing how people in the, in these days now are integrating this practice, this practical knowledge, you know, like how are people like, I'm also curious because, uh, you know, um, uh, Christopher Warnock mentioned that, you know, he has Japanese students, you know, who are interested mm -hmm. in, you know, the Picatrix and, um, you know, other, you know, the other, the other books of the sort of astrological magical corpus. Um, so there's still that interchange going on in today. And I'm wondering if like, the way that looks in Japan is different than the way it looks in, say, you know, Salt Lake City or something. Well, that's a really good question. So in, in, in Japan today, there was actually um, recently a translation of the Picatrix from Latin into Japanese. 
um, by a Japanese gentleman who I believe lives in Italy, who's fluent in Italian and Latin. And so he translated Picatrix into Japanese. And there's actually been um, a longstanding interest in Western esotericism and the occult in Japan since the 20th century, as well as Western astrology. So you have, um, you know, modern Japanese astrologers who practice effectively, you know, Renaissance and uh, modern Western astrology. And I guess at the same time, too, I mean, these people are also aware of the practices of, of the Picatrix and so on. I personally haven't met anybody in Japan who was a practitioner of the Picatrix, but that doesn't surprise me that Christopher Warnock has students um, from Japan. I mean, he himself is connected with uh, Shingon and he himself is ordained in the Shingon tradition. So that doesn't surprise me. Like in Japan, there's a very there's a very open minded approach to um, religion and spirituality and a lot of that also stems from the fact that I would dare say that the Japanese approach to religion is far less dogmatic and sectarian and identity based than what you have in the West. So a lot of Japanese people, if you ask them, are you religious? They most likely will say, no, I'm not religious, but they still do religious things. Like they go to the Jinja and pray to the God. They have a Buddhist funeral. They will practice some sort of Buddhist ritual at home. Um, or they might get in, they might engage in some sort of um, you know magical practice using you know books that they they bought from the bookstore and so on. So to them, religion is also an alien idea because the word religion itself is a Western concept that was only translated into Japanese in the 19th century when they started translating European languages into Japanese, and so they had to come up with a word for religion, which became shukyo. But shukyo itself doesn't actually have any um, original meaning of religion, like this concept of religion where religion is separate from science, which is separate from philosophy, was originally not there in, in Japan. And that also goes for China as well. So you can um, much more easily in that sort of, uh, you know, society uh, make use of, of, of various materials from different traditions and people don't necessarily think that there's any sort of contradiction or a violation of one's own identity. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about like your academic trajectory, Jeffrey, like where it's led you or where your studies have led you. Like, cause I also kind of wanted to get into, cause you're saying you're, you've actually been getting a little bit away from the religious studies and you want to go, you know, you want to transition more full on into um, just straight up as astrological studies. Right. Right. So uh, basically, there's a lot of astrological literature in Chinese. And when I say there's a lot, what I mean is that there's actually several volumes, um, phone book size of Chinese texts from ranging from, I guess, what, the 10th to the 16th centuries um, that haven't really been read or studied or documented or analyzed in any language. And that even goes for Chinese and Japanese. Wow. Nobody has actually read these texts in any great detail at least in, in academia. I think in China and Japan, you actually do have people who read these texts, like they're professional astrologers um, who are, I guess, um, six, I guess they've inherited um, a tradition of astrology um, going back to like the 18th or 19th centuries, or they're just enthusiasts themselves and they're reading this literature, but it's not like an academic scholarly treatment of the literature. And, and so I've started excavating this material, and the biggest text is called the Xingxue Dachang, which is the Great Compendium of Star Studies, 
by a uh, Chinese court official and scholar named Wan Minying, which is 16th century. And so my paper is Sinoplatonic papers, which I encourage my which I encourage our listeners to download and read if they're interested, is kind of uh, scratching the surface. So again, this sort of material deals with uh, the zodiac, the lunar stations, and then it also ends up incorporating some native Chinese elements like the five elements and so on. And so it's it's uh, it's about 30 fascicles, and one fascicle is basically, you could consider it a chapter. So it's 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 a very lengthy text in Chinese. And I'd like to actually translate about 10 chapters of that, specifically the sections on the uh, zodiac. Now, the other interesting thing about native Chinese horoscopy is that you actually have the lunar apogee, which in modern astrology is called Lilith, um, which is treated as a separate planet. And this is something I discovered in my research was that um, in Chinese, this uh, pseudo planet. So it's like Rahu or Ketu. It's one of it's like one of the ascending or descending nodes in that it's not a physical body that actually exists, but it's a point on the ecliptic that you can actually track. And it has um, um, it ha it actually has some sort of astronomical function as well as having an astrological meaning as well. And so the lunar apogee in Chinese horoscopy. Um, is also connected to the Iranian deity Al, but Al is also connected to the Semitic Lilith. And I tried to figure out if Lilith in modern Western astrology has any sort of precedent, specifically maybe in an Arabic or a Hebrew source. So in modern Western astrology, the lunar apogee is also called Lilith, and it appears that Sepharial, who was an English astrologer who lived between 1864 and 1929, was the first to introduce Lilith into European astrology. But this was initially connected to a purported second satellite of the Earth. Um, but then later in the 20th century, you have the lunar apogee associated with this um, Semitic deity, um, Lilith. But in the Chinese tradition, the lunar apogee is actually more connected with the Iranian deity, Al. And, and Al literally means red. And the iconography of Al in China is that of usually a nude female with long hair um, holding a severed head as well as a sword. And so there's actually a connection between um, this deity and the Semitic Lilith. Although in actual practice, uh, it's the, the lunar apogee iconography in China is coming from an Iranian, not a Hebrew source. So we also have to keep that in mind. And in any case, in Chinese horoscopy, the lunar apogee is a malefic. And it's, it's generally very unfavorable. It's more unfavorable than Saturn and Mars. It's the foremost malefic, according to the literature. I mean, it's very Martian. The, the red and the, the severed head and the sword, I mean, isn't that a representation of Mars maybe in, uh, in Picatrix? Of course, it's not a woman. Well, 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 the color, the color red, yes, um, but in this case, um, it's not Martian. It's it's a separate um, planet altogether. Um, also, like the astronomical parameters of it, seem to actually stem from uh, ultimately the astronomy of Hipparchus, in my estimation. So, but this is also coming from an Iranian source, not an Indian source. So that's also another thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Janice, what were you going to mention? Well, I was going to say that she's also traditionally associated with Algol, um, you know, the star Algol or Algol. Mm -hmm. And it sounds as if the influence of uh, Algol and the 
what you're describing is actually fairly similar mm-hmm. too. And they're both also associated with the head. You know, the Algol is often like depicted as the head of Medusa or it's called the head of, uh, um, you know, so it's, it's just an interesting thing there, what you're talking about. Cause I wonder if there's perhaps a connection between Algol and the, um, the lunar mm-hmm. point you're describing. Right. Right. Um, I don't know if there's any specific connection between the lunar apogee and the fixed stars that we find in uh, the West, but according to Wan Minying in the 16th century, um, you, you you still have a lot of astrological lore connected with the lunar apogee, but it's not Martian and it's not connected to any fixed stars. So this is treated as a unique planet. And I can just give you an example here from um, one of my tentative translations. Um, so if the lunar apogee is under the domicile rulership of Saturn, Venus, Mercury, or the moon, the native um, will be firm in their personal disposition. They will be loyal and upright in their deeds, but they will scheme and enjoy killing. And then um, as another example, if Yuebe, or if Yuebe, Yuebe is the Chinese word for the lunar apogee, and Mercury are conjunct in the same sign, it indicates calamity resulting from literary learning. There will be much deceit. If aspecting one of the four penal sign, one of the penal stars, it indicates a calamity connected to pus and blood. If positioned in the third or ninth signs, it indicates dying by having fallen into water without a corpse to be found. So generally, it's very malefic predictions, and you don't generally have anything favorable to be said about the lunar apogee in medieval Chinese horoscopy. Excuse this question. How did we get on, the, on this? <laughs> right. My, my, current, my, my current trajectory. Yeah, yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So what I would like to actually look at in the future is the translation of Arabic astrology into China, which starts in the 14th century. My recent publication okay. just um, started touching upon this. So in the uh, 14th century, you had the translation of the Al-Mudkal, um, uh, which was tra- which was originally produced by um, who was it Ibn? Uh, let me see here. Okay, so basically, what I'm interested in is in the 14th century, you had the translation of the Al Matkal by Kushar Ibn Laban, who lived between 971 and 1029. And so, the title in Chinese nowadays is just Book of Astronomy Translated into Ming. But this manual of horoscopic astrology is in large part adapted from um, Audius Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos. And I've found that in also some 16th century manuals of horoscopy in Chinese, they're quoting this text. So what you end up having is the um, Ptolemaic transmission of horoscopy into Chinese starting in the late 14th century. But there were other texts on astronomy and astrology translated from Arabic into Chinese. So I would actually like to look at these in greater detail and also evaluate the impact these had in um, later Chinese horoscopy. Um, in order to really do this capably, though, I really should be able to read the Arabic. So I'm hoping at some point to do a crash course in classical Arabic so I could start actually reading the um, Arabic text because we have the Chinese translation of the Arabic which I think would be very fascinating to read as a, as a scholar of uh, classical Chinese. Yeah. Wow. And what's the story that, uh, well, if you, you ever, talking about? if you ever get, <laughs> go ahead. You go, Janice, we'll start over here. <laughs> I was going to say, it, I was going to say, if you ever, if you ever um, become proficient in Arabic, you could 
you could translate the Shams al-Marim. Right. There's a lot of things that I could translate from Arabic. I mean, <laughs> there's only so much one can do in, in one lifetime. But yeah, my, my future scholarly projects hopefully will be able to um, incorporate uh, knowledge of Arabic or at least have basic literacy in it so I can cite the original Arabic sources. That's quite ambitious. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's rather significant discrepancies between the Arabic Picatrix and the Latin. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, fortunately, we have Liana Saif in the United Kingdom who's translating the uh, Arabic into English. But she's not just translating the Arabic. She's also doing a very careful um, annotated translation with reference to multiple manuscripts. So this is a very wow. deep and thorough translation and study of the uh, Gaia Talakim uh, Picatrix. So we're, we're looking forward oh, to this. I'm eagerly awaiting. Yeah, we're, 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 all, we're all waiting anxiously for her translation. And I think she understands that she has a lot of uh, readers lined up for her work. No pressure, right? <laughs> yeah. So what is this story? I want to get to this story. So Janice was telling me something about a, uh, a picture that you were helping to date or analyze. What, what is this all about? Sounds interesting. Yeah, so um, one of my colleagues is a um, art historian and she looks at medieval Japanese Buddhist art and she has one of these star mandalas that's actually in the Met Museum in New York. So it's in the possession of the Met Museum in Manhattan. And this is a star mandala. And very interestingly, what we find in it is the arrangement of the planets in the zodiac signs in a way that would look more like a horoscope and not just like a random distribution of the planets in a circular format. So some of them are clustered together in Gemini, which would again suggest that this is a horoscope. But she said, well, if this is a horoscope, how can we date it? And so when I looked at it, I took a really close look at it. And what I discovered was that it actually can be dated because the actual planetary configuration in it um, can you, you can date it by actually looking at the, first of all, the position of the sun, and the sun is in Libra, so this is going to be in autumn. And then the other thing we would look at would be, where's the position of Saturn and Jupiter? Because we know that Saturn and Jupiter are conjunct every 20 years, right? And so what you have is Saturn is in Capricorn, and Jupiter is just um, coming up behind him in uh, Sagittarius. And so what you end up doing is looking through the uh, medieval period at the conjunctions and then just going back at least a year before each of the conjunctions to see if we can find this specific planetary configuration. And we actually managed to find a date in the 13th century that corresponds to all of the planets in the mandala except for the moon. But I'm not really so concerned about that because um, the other horoscopes we have from medieval Japan and China don't seem to accurately position the moon because it was notoriously difficult to calculate the movement of the moon um, in the past, um, simply because the mathematics that they used in medieval East Asia didn't take into account the movement of the apogee. Um, so that so again, the you have the 
uh, elliptical movement of the moon, but then you also have something called apsidal precession. So the apogee is also moving at the same time, and you actually have to calculate for that in order to get an accurate position of the moon. And the mathematics that they used didn't do this. So you ended up with inaccurate positioning of the moon in the horoscopes. So in this painting, everything but the moon seems to be spot on. It's in the right zodiac signs. And this sort of configuration won't happen ever again. And on the basis of it, uh, the, the brushwork looking like it's 13th or early 14th century, we established the, the date um, on the basis of, of the configuration of the planets relative to the zodiac signs. And I'm also confident about this simply because of uh, the fact that if you understand this is probably a, um, a nativity, um, so whoever commissioned this was probably a grown adult or you know possibly aged, so you basically have between you know one and 75 years and so that puts us into like the early 14th century and the brushwork reflects that period quite quite accurately so it's, it's a very interesting way to date one of these paintings because there's no inscription on it that gives us any clues as to who painted it or when or who it was for or who it was for it was probably for some somebody who was very wealthy it wasn't for yeah. a poor person right right yeah but that's remarkable to me that you basically were able to date this painting as by using the astrological material i mean that's just who i mean you might be one of the only people to have done that well i mean at least in a very long time <laughs> well in this case too i mean uh, the iconography you have to understand which of the uh, planetary deities are being depicted um the zodiac signs i mean it's easy enough to see them but you also have to be able to identify the planetary deities but if you look at them i mean you know saturn is depicted as a, as an indian brahmin and then Venus is carrying her pipa, that's the guitar. And so um, you can you can you can identify the planets relative to the zodiac signs. That's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, my kids are starting to really get rambunctious, so I think my time's running out here. Um, okay. Anything else you wanted to add, uh, Janice, or or ask? Uh, really, I just want to tell you that we're honored to have had you on the show. It was a fantastic conversation. We learned so much, but where can people find you? Where can people find your stuff? I mean, what are you, any, anything, anything exciting coming down the pipeline? I mean, heck, I mean, the occult book industry is like a cottage industry. You could be like a, you could be like a power baller if you, were, <laughs> you know, translate some obscure astrological text. Right. Okay. So my future plans for the time being is to publish my first book, which will basically be um, the history of, Horoscopy and Astro Magic in China. And so I hope to get that published next year. This will be an academic volume, but I, hopefully it won't cost too much money because sometimes these academic books end up costing more than a hundred bucks, but I'll try my best to keep it affordable. And then on top of that, I have some um, coming out concerning um, this star mandala as well as some Astro Magic and so on in East Asia. So I'll keep publishing on this as well. And then uh, if you want to, you can look at my blog, which is, um, I've, it's been online about 10 years, but half of it deals with um, Buddhist history and the other half of it deals with the history of astrology in East Asia. And you can Google it, Flower Ornament Depository. I know it's a curious name, but it has a Buddhist significance. And we can uh, put a link to that on the website. And then Absolutely. also uh, download um, all of my academic articles um, from archive.org and so we'll also put a link to that so you don't have to register you can just download the pdfs directly without having to register for any sort of service or give your email out and um so in the future yeah i'm going to produce one book on 
the medieval Chinese astrology and astro magic. And then after that, I hope to do the book on medieval Japanese astrology and astro magic. And then we'll see where everything goes from there. That's fantastic. And you also have a bunch of papers on academia. Right. Edu. I don't no, those, those papers are the same ones on archive. The same ones. Okay. For academia, you have to register and give your okay. email. So, but in the case of archive, you can just download it directly. That's right. This has been a fascinating conversation. I mean, really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you guys, and hopefully we can do this again in the future. Cool. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, okay. We'll see We'd you later. Love then. To do that. Yeah, we would consider it a standing invitation to come back. Sure. Okay. Well, in the future, and we can have another discussion. Okay, great stuff. Thank you again, Mr. Kotick. If you want to follow what he's up to, Check out his blog, The Flower Ornament Depository. And you can also find all of his papers at archive.org as well as academia.edu. And you can really just Google his name, Jeffrey Kotick, K-O-T-Y-K, and a whole bunch of stuff will pop up. We are looking forward to talking to him again in the future. As for us, you can find us on YouTube and Facebook. Give us a like there. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all of those places. If you guys wouldn't mind, give us a rating in those places and help us jump up the charts a little bit. We're trying to get more exposure to these guests. They've got some really interesting things to say, and it would be great if they did have more exposure and more people can have access to them, really. We've talked to Greg Shaw, Robert Place, Edward Butler, Chris Warnock, Jeff Kodak and Stuart Sudicum, and they've all had some really insightful and enlightening things to say, so help us get the word out. Other than that, we have a Patreon page, so if you want to become a patron, that would really help us out. We're hoping to get this podcast fully self-sustaining and so that it pays for itself. That's really, that would be awesome, but uh, so if you're feeling generous and you want to help us continue doing what we're doing, then consider becoming a patron. You can find our patron information through our website at right now. The the website address is the magician and the fool dot pod bean P O D B E A N.com. So other than that, we are all done for today. We hope you enjoyed it and we are looking forward to our next episode. So we will see you then.